This episode was made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. For more information, please visit patreon.com slash author Chris Lester. You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is episode 162. Hello, Metamorphs. Welcome back to The Raven and the Writing Desk. I'm Chris Lester, the creator of the Metamorph City Story Universe. You can find more of my work at chrislester.org and metamorphcity.com. This is the show where I share my fiction with you, available in audio for the first time anywhere. It's also where I keep you up to date on my life and my writing. But first, let's get to this week's story. Today I'm bringing you Chapter 20 of my Metamore City novel, The Lost and the Least. If you're new to the show, go back to Episode 143 to hear this story from the beginning. The following recap will contain spoilers. In last week's episode, Kate traveled to the Matthias Genealogical Library, where the Empire keeps records on the genetic histories and interrelationships between billions of people over the last 13 centuries. Kate was hoping to gain insight into the victims of a recent string of murder kidnappings. People have been taken off the street in broad daylight. Most of them have been killed within 24 hours, used as fuel for some sort of black magic ritual. But five of the victims were held and tortured for weeks before they died. Kate thinks that these so-called red files may have some special trait that could serve as a key to the murderer's goals and motivations. In particular, Kate thinks the killers might be preparing for a bloodline curse, something they could use to target a specific, hard-to-reach enemy. Someone like the Vampire Prince, Malcolm Ardvalos. Kate already knows there is a new player in the criminal underworld, someone who's been launching a campaign of harassment and sabotage against the Vampire Syndicate's holdings. Maybe this same conspiracy is about to up the ante in a big way. What Kate doesn't realize is that her best friend is a member of that conspiracy. A few months ago, Morgan Drowling was approached by Amelie Grace, a childhood friend from the nobility, who has gone on to become the head priestess of the vampire religion in Metamore City. Amelie's sire, the priestess Allura, was a rival of Malcolm's for influence and political control in the syndicate. Malcolm secretly had her killed by firebombing her church, making it look like an accident, and Allura was replaced by Amelie, whom Malcolm thought he could groom to serve his own purposes for the church. But Amelie was secretly recruited by the White Widow, the leader of the conspiracy against Malcolm, who persuaded Amelie that Malcolm was behind her mistress's murder. Amelie swore revenge against Malcolm, and she in turn recruited Morgan to the cause. Morgan had two important stipulations, though. She would not violate her oath to MCPD, and innocents are absolutely off-limits. Amelie agreed, and welcomed Morgan into the insurgency known as the White. In the last few days, though, Morgan is starting to wonder if Amelie was able to keep that promise. The kidnapping victims who've been turning up in her morgue were drained of blood— their life force taken to fuel some dark ritual of immense power. To make matters worse, the victims were given false vampire bites, making it look like the syndicate was behind the attacks. Morgan fears that one of the White's resistance cells may have gone rogue, 
and now they're willing to stop at nothing to destroy the vampire prince, even if they have to paint Metamore in the blood of the innocent in order to do it. Morgan passed her fears up the chain of command to the White Widow, hoping that if it is a rogue-resistant cell, they can be brought under control before anyone else dies. If the Widow is taking any action on the matter, though, Morgan has yet to hear about it. The Lost and the Least A Novel of Metamore City Written and read by Chris Lester Chapter 20 After two hours of searching the genealogical records, Kate had more questions than answers. She saved copies of everything she had found, emailed them to herself, and thanked Rosalind again on her way out the door. Once outside, she pulled out her mobile phone and called Morgan again. The sun was not yet below the western mountains, but the vampire still picked up on the fourth ring. "'Good evening, darling,' Morgan said brightly. "'I got your message.' I was about to call you after breakfast. The short answer is no, I don't think you're going crazy. Glad to hear it, Kate said. I'm just heading back from the Matthias Library, and I have a bunch of new information to go over. Want to meet me at my place and help me make sense of it? Morgan snorted. Kate, darling, I love you dearly, but if I set foot in that apartment, I will be useless until I have cleaned and organized it from top to bottom. Well, sure. Kate said, as if that were obvious. I can't afford a cleaning service, so an OCD vampire is the next best thing. Charming, Morgan said dryly. What say we make it neutral ground? The night owl, across from Werner Hall, in one hour. You buy the coffee. Deal, Kate said. See you soon. The night owl was a 24-7 coffee shop in the University District, on the second Skyway level. An eclectic mixture of modern and rustic decor, it appealed to insomniac uni students who thought of themselves as sophisticated, but were still attracted to bright, shiny gadgets. Kate went there often for morning coffee sessions with Morgan, when Kate was about to start her shift and Morgan was just ending hers. It felt a little pretentious for Kate's tastes, but the coffee was good, and it reminded Morgan of her med school days, so Kate was happy to accommodate her. The Sunday bus routes didn't offer any express lines between Glen Avery and the Uni District, so Morgan was already seated when Kate arrived. Kate ordered two mugs of full-immersion dark roast, then carried them carefully up the stairs to Morgan's table on the second floor, the files and printouts tucked under one arm. "'Take these before I drop something,' Kate said. "'With pleasure,' said Morgan. She slid the papers out from under Kate's elbow— squared the stack neatly on the table, then stepped back while Kate set down the cups. Only then did Morgan come back in for a tight hug. I hope you had fun last night, she said, trip to the morgue notwithstanding. That wasn't even the worst part of my evening, Kate said sourly. Captain Montgomery showed up at my apartment. She tapped the files with one finger, gave me an earful about doing police work when I'm suspended. Morgan's brow creased in a slight frown. I thought you were getting back on duty. Yeah, Kate sighed. And that's the other thing. Captain Shaw invited me to join Special Investigations. 
I put in my transfer papers on Friday. Morgan winced, sucking in a breath between her teeth. Oh, Kate, I don't know whether to congratulate you or offer my condolences. No kidding, Kate said glumly. Cap has always been like my cool uncle in the force. I figured I'd be working for him till he retired, you know? But he just doesn't understand how much Doc Tamlin's got it in for me. If I played this the way Cap wanted me to, I could be stuck on leave for years. She shrugged. Shaw offered me a way back in the game. I took it. It sucks to have to hurt him like this, but I'm not going to turn down a promotion to SID just to spare his feelings. Not when he doesn't even want me. Morgan reached across the table and took Kate's hand. You know that's not fair, she said gently. Montgomery loves you. He doesn't want to see you get hurt, so he's being cautious. Yeah, well, it's not his call, Kate said. I'm a grown woman. It's about time he realized that. Morgan squeezed her hand and smiled. Fair enough. So what have you got for us, darling? Well, I started digging into the genealogies for the Red File Vicks, Kate said, as she started spreading out the papers on the table. After I called you, I talked to my runner friend, Callie. She has evidence of some kind of shadow group working to target the syndicate. Morgan's response was interesting. Her eyes widened slightly. Her nostrils flared. Her hand twitched against her mug. And then, a fraction of a second later, it all vanished behind an ironic smile. Has Malcolm finally made an enemy he can't readily dispose of, then? I dare say it was about time. You know something, Kate thought, frowning. Why aren't you telling me what it is? No sooner had the question occurred to her, though, then she remembered Morgan's new relationship with Ava Selindi. Kate leaned in across the table. I'm getting the sense you know something about this already. Did Ava tell you something that you're not allowed to tell me? Morgan's expression went swiftly from dismay to embarrassed relief. I'm sorry. This business of having a foot in two worlds can be a bit awkward. If I know anything that can directly help your case, I'll tell you. Fair enough. Kate said. So anyway, it occurred to me that if Malcolm had any living descendants, they could be used to target him with some kind of bloodline curse. Kill him and everyone else in the line all in one go. Morgan took a sip of her coffee, apparently weighing the concept in her mind. Creative, she said at last. Diabolical and indiscriminate in the extreme, but creative. We're talking about people who power their spells with death magic, Kate said. Indiscriminate is in the job description. Point, Morgan admitted. Did you find any connections? Yes, but not the ones I was looking for. Kate pulled out the family trees she had printed for each of the Red File victims, then placed them on top of their respective folders. Each tree had several ancestor boxes circled in pencil. I couldn't find any family records for Malcolm himself. He's not from Metamore, and his family isn't nobility, so I guess that's not all that surprising. Particularly since it would behoove Malcolm to disguise his mortal ancestry as much as possible, Morgan said. Valos may not even be his true family name. Right, Kate said. So then I started looking for shared ancestors between the victims. That's when it got complicated. She pointed to the ancestors she had circled. All of these people were related to each other. 
They aren't close relations, but the same names keep popping up in their backgrounds. And I think you'll recognize some of the names. Morgan picked up one of the family trees and examined it closely. Matthias, Stassen, Hassan, Brightleaf. She looked up in surprise. This is like a who's who of Metamor's ancient heroes. Exactly. The victims weren't nobility, but they're carrying a lot of noble blood. Plus the blood of non-noble heroes, like St. Mirai. Morgan compared three of the other family trees to the one in her hand, her dark eyes darting back and forth between the sheets. What if Mirai is the one they're targeting? There's a Stossen in every one of these sheets. Maybe they are, Kate said. But everything they've done so far has been targeting the Syndicate. That may not be the same group, Morgan cautioned. These death mages may just be blaming their kills on vampires out of convenience, not because they're affiliated with the group working to destroy Malcolm. Kate scoffed. <laughs> so now we've got two underground conspiracies we didn't know about? Come on, Morgan, what are the odds on that? Greater than zero, Morgan said firmly. Have you found any evidence directly connecting the two? Or are you just playing a hunch? Kate thought about it. Then she clenched a fist and pounded it on the arm of her chair. Damn it, you're right. They may not be connected. She looked down at the papers again. Which means I know even less than I thought I did. Morgan smiled sympathetically. It happens. I definitely think you're on to something, though. The fact that all of these victims share a similar pedigree suggests that they're targeting a specific combination of traits. Kate frowned. What kinds of traits? No idea. Probably not anything externally visible, judging by the victim's diverse appearance and racial backgrounds. Is that something you could look for in their DNA samples? Kate asked. Morgan shook her head. In theory, yes, but practically speaking, no. The DNA fingerprinting that we do in forensics is a simple gel assay, using restriction fragments. Morgan! Kate held up a hand. Cop language, please. Morgan sighed. We use enzymes to chop up the DNA into pieces at very specific genetic markers. Different people have those markers in different places, so you get differently sized pieces of DNA from different people. Then we sort the pieces by size and take a photograph under UV light. That's the picture you get in your forensics report, with the white bands arranged into columns. If two people are closely related, those bands will have a similar pattern but that doesn't tell us anything about the genes those people have. Gotcha, Kate said. So how do you look at a person's genes? Well, if you know the gene you're looking for, you can create a probe that targets that specific genetic sequence. If the probe sticks to the subject's DNA, then you know that person has that gene. She grimaced. For the record, this is a gross oversimplification of the process. We're talking about complex and expensive work, darling. Kate acknowledged this with a wave of her hand. And what if you don't know what gene you're looking for? You're probably out of luck, I'm afraid. You'd have to sequence each victim's entire genome, and then compare them all for sequences in common. You're talking about six billion base pairs, more or less, times however many subjects you're comparing. I don't suppose you have access to a few hundred thousand marks, an automated sequencer, and a supercomputer? Kate rubbed her face with both hands. Shit. So what do I do? Morgan shuffled through the papers, frowning thoughtfully. 
Well, at least you have a list of common ancestors to work with. You could use that to develop a profile of potential victims. I have a feeling we're still going to end up with a list of hundreds or thousands of people, Kate said. Like the librarian told me, we're all more inbred than we think we are. Especially if you have nobility in your family tree, Morgan said wryly. You make a fair point. I'll look into the medical histories on these red files. If they share an unusual genetic condition, it may have shown up as some kind of health problem. Good thinking, Kate said. They might have had some kind of shared magical talent, too. I'll put in a request to the BMR once I get cleared for duty again. Is there any word yet from Ava on the smuggling front? If we knew what kind of gents they're after, it could give us a clue on why they want these people. Nothing yet, but I wouldn't worry, Morgan said. Ava's a subtle operator. Whatever she does to root out these people, it's likely to be slow and quiet. The merc's face slammed into the pool table, his nose shattered against the unyielding slate. The big man shrieked in pain as Evan Selindy levered back his arm in a submission hold, using his pool cue to pin the man in place. Let's try this again, shall we? Evan's tone was light, but he gritted his teeth in vindictive pleasure as he increased the pressure on the merc's arm. Good evening, Hector. It's so lovely to see you again. Let's have a pint and discuss some business. What do you say? Hector's breathing was fast, shallow, and somewhat muffled, on account of his lips being pressed into the felt of the pool table. Evan eased up on the pressure just a little, and the man gasped in relief. What do you say? Evan repeated, a note of warning in his sing-song voice. Sure, Evan, Hector muttered at last. Let's talk. Brilliant. Evan released his submission hold and took two quick steps back, keeping his pool cue ready in case Hector's stupidity and aggression were not yet exhausted. After you, my good man. Hector went over to a small booth in a dimly lit corner of the bar, dripping blood all the way. The server brought him a cold, wet bar towel, and he pressed it gingerly to his nose as he took his seat. Evan slid gracefully into the seat opposite him and turned to the server. A pint of imperial red for my friend here, and the Attenhausen doppelbock for me. Right away, sir. The server cast wide and frightened eyes at both of them before hurrying away. Deliberately, Evan smoothed the lines of his light gray suit. Oh, Hector, you made me sweat in my best Sternakova. You know how I hate resorting to violence. Hector grunted. You're stronger than the last time we met. I have an excellent personal trainer, Evan said. I also have an urgent need for your insight in the areas of your expertise. The merc's eyes narrowed above the folded towel. It ain't healthy to be taking contracts from the vamps no more, Evan. Evan hid his surprise behind a bland smile. Oh, but this has nothing to do with the syndicate. I've been approached by a new client, an arcane supplier from Kanos. They specialize in certain materials that are, shall we say, difficult to obtain here in the Empire. Evan pulled the slim black book from his jacket pocket, then slid it across the table to Hector. Given that you're an expert in connecting people with goods that are difficult to obtain, I was hoping you might enlighten me as to whether any of these items might be in demand. 
I'd be happy to split the commission with you, if you can find me any suitable buyers. Hector paged through the book for several minutes in complete silence. The server brought their drinks, took a twenty-mark bill from Evan, and left without a word. Finally, Hector closed the book and slid it back to Evan. I'm out, he said. Evan let his surprise show this time. Really? Surely something in there would catch the interest of your customers? Hector snorted, then gasped at what Evan presumed was a stab of pain from his broken nose. Oh, that shit's plenty hot right now. That's why I'm out. Evan leaned forward, frowning. He pitched his voice low. I'm not sure I follow. Hector matched him, leaning close to his ear. There's this new group of buyers been snapping up every bit of dark magic they can get their hands on. Anything that can kill. Fireballs, death clouds, creepy necromancy shit. You name it, they're buying. Evan slid his eyes toward Hector. Sounds like a splendid time to be in your line of work, my friend. Yeah, Hector said sourly. And that means in about half a tick, the BMR's gonna bring the hammer down. The buyer's gonna ghost, like always, and skags like us get flattened. His lip twisted into an ironic half-smile. And that's if the Reds don't shut it down first. Why? Evan asked. Malcolm's never gone after the independent contractors before. And if he does, he thought, we're all in a great deal of trouble. Malcolm's never been in this kind of trouble before, Hector retorted. This new cadre, the ones buying all this bad shit? What you think they're using it for? Evan's heart sank a little. He'd been hoping that his suspicions of a terrorist insurgency against the syndicate were just paranoid fantasies. Between Hector's story and the faked vampire kills, though, Evan suspected that he'd underestimated the scope of the problem. I see, he said at last. If my client does decide to pursue this... Who would be the best agent to talk to? Any idiot with a boat, a plane, or a truck, Hector said. Go down to the docks at Menth, you'll find a dozen of them. Or look for the gangers flashing white. White? Evan frowned. That's a peace flag. Hector chortled, a high-pitched and nearly hysterical sound. <laughs> Not no more, it ain't. White means death now, for the vamps and anybody who works for them. Hector drained the rest of his beer, then rose, setting the empty glass on the table. I gotta see to this, he said, pointing at his nose. Thanks for the drink, Evan. Sorry I mouthed at you. Sorry I broke your nose, Evan said, and meant it. He stood and handed Hector a rolled stack of bills. Here, for your medic. Hector took the money and slipped it into a pocket. Keep a sharp eye out there, man. If I were you, I'd tell your client to fuck off. You don't want to get caught between the reds and the whites when shit goes down for real. Evan nodded soberly. I'll remember. Good night, Hector. Night. Evan watched the big man go. As he did, he noticed four different people pretending not to watch. Two wearing red bandanas. Two wearing armbands of white. This is a very bad time to be poking your nose into other people's business, he told himself. You keep this up, old boy, and you're going to have people queuing up for a piece of your exquisitely sculpted ass.
Then again, if Evans stopped getting involved, a lot of other people were apparently going to end up dead. And not just the gangers. The sight of those bodies in the morgue rose up in his memory, haunting him. Evan wasn't any kind of hero. He never had been. But for all he could pretend to belong to high society, these were his people. The street rats, the ones who lived in the shadow of the powerful and tried not to get stepped on. And now someone wanted to use them as batteries for their feud with the vampires? It could not be borne. Evan finished his drink, walked outside, then slid into the shadows in an alcove across the street. He waited there, silent and patient, until the men with the white armbands emerged. Then, carefully and quietly, he followed them. And that's the end of chapter 20. Come back next time when we'll find out the result of Evan's impromptu espionage. Plus, Morgan meets Callie Linder, and our heroes exchange some important intel. Rainier Maria Rilke said, This most of all, ask yourself in the most silent hour of your night, must I write? Dig into yourself for a deep answer. And if this answer rings out in assent, if you meet this solemn question with a strong, simple, I must, then build your life in accordance with this necessity. So, let's see how I've been building my life lately. Here's your weekly writing report. I wrote 1,943 words last week, over the course of three hours, for an average writing speed of 648 words per hour. I wrote on four out of seven days last week. Last week I did some more prep work for my new story, Homecoming. Since this story involves Kate's parents, I spent a considerable amount of time just sitting with them as characters, picturing them in my mind, thinking about where they had come from, listening to what matters to them, hearing their stories. I found that my evening walks with Marco are really good for this. I turn off my headphones, open the notepad app on my phone, and do this sort of free association, writing down words and ideas as they occur to me. Later, I look back at those notes and shape them into a more coherent narrative, which I record on my writer's wiki. I don't have to know everything about these characters before I start writing them, but I want a few solid hooks for my characterization, so I can make sure that they feel consistent as I tell the story. This also helps for when I sit down to write for real, because it means that I don't spend 15 minutes dithering over, say, the color of Sam Catane's eyes. This week I didn't get any new writing done, not even on the wiki. Mel left for a business trip to Montana on Tuesday, so I wanted to spend some extra time with her before she left. And since then, I've been working my ass off. Between overtime at my job, my weekly game night with friends, and Thursday night band practice, I haven't had time to slow down and write until Friday night, when I'm writing this script. The investigations I've been dealing with at work are finally coming to a close, though, so hopefully I'll be able to make some more time for writing next week. Over on the Patreon feed, we have a new patron this week. Say hello to Steve! Thanks to generous listeners like you, we're now up to 118 patrons on this campaign. 
For as little as $3 a month, you get access to bonus art, sneak peeks, cover reveals, author commentaries, and other cool stuff. This week I released the latest piece of bonus art, from Metamore City artist Ben Clifford. It shows Morgan and Ava in a tender moment together in Chapter 13 of The Lost in the Least. I love this piece, and I hope you will too. You can become a patron by going to patreon.com slash author Chris Lester and making a pledge today. And if you're already a patron, thank you so much for your support. And now, the feedback. Hi Chris, it's Sarah Testarosa. I've been getting caught up on The Lost in the Late, and I'm really enjoying it so far. I'm still one chapter behind, but... I think I've said this before, but I love how so many threads from so many of your previous books and stories are coming together, and I really, really like how you did Kate's dream that wasn't exactly just a dream. I I I like seeing, you know, the White Widow there and that kind of little hint. Um, The bone stuff was nicely creepy, and the the prison was definitely interesting how... (laughs) And Malcolm was there, too. And I kind of think it was cool that she got to see the girl she killed in a non-faceless manner. I don't know. But while she was doing this, I'm thinking, like, why are you, like, trying to open the door to solitary? Like, I know there's a voice calling you, but this is completely not logical, Kate. Come on. And, I mean, dream selves don't necessarily do what we would, plus there's probably some sort of magical or psychic compulsion behind that same voice. But I am very glad that the sunk form was able to get her out of that. Hey, Sarah. Yes, I think we can safely say that it is a very good thing that Murakir woke Kate out of that dream before she could open the door. Obviously, I can't go into too many details right now, but I will point out that we learned in Things Unseen that Kate is immune to magical and psychic mind control, so that's not what's going on here. You can think of this as less of a compulsion and more of a lure— and the power of that lure is directly connected to Kate's supernatural heritage. As the thrall tells her in her dream, the key isn't something you have, it's something you are. And what do keys do? They open doors. They reveal things that are hidden. That's part of Kate's nature. Now, Kate's conscious mind does get a vote on these things, but the voice came to her in her dreams. Have you ever tried to reason through a confusing situation when you're dreaming? You feel thick and slow, like you're trying to run through molasses. Every act of rational thought is an enormous effort, and the connections that you'd be quick to make in your waking life come with great difficulty, while things that would make no sense to your waking self seem perfectly normal to your subconscious. That's the feeling I was going for in this scene. Kate never questions why her apartment leads back into the Citadel's catacombs, or why the staircase is made of bone— or why people's faces are appearing in empty space. And she never questions whether she's supposed to open the door to find out who's calling her. At least, not until Murakir wakes her up. And I'm really excited about the fact that now Callie is kind of picking up where Silas left off. I mean, you know, with help, obviously, and it's nice to see the sides coming back into things. Brian and Nathan. I didn't expect to see Nathan again, so it's like, hi, Nathan. Uh, Brian, I'm glad to see, definitely. That, that was heavy lifting he had to do there. Uh, anyway, um, and Bill Will's being good. Although, I wonder, did he get, did he ever get um, Nathan that soda and stuff? 
Anyway. Uh, <laughs> yes, Will did go and make that supply run, but I pretty much skipped over it and jumped to when he came back, so I'm not surprised that you missed it. It was like half a paragraph. At this point in the writing process, I was 18 chapters in and still hadn't even gotten through the first act, so I decided that the book was going to be long enough without following Will on a trip to the corner bodega and back. Besides, if I had followed him there, he probably would have had to get into some kind of trouble, and Will's going to have a hard enough time in this book already. But I'm really enjoying it so far and looking forward to what's next. But the reason I'm calling right now... I really just wanted to send empathy and encouragement because your lack of writing in August is totally, totally understandable. And I know that you've gotten used to being able to at least get out a bit of fiction every month and stuff for the most part. But, you know, like you said, you've had a lot going on. And I mean, I've been in, I never was, never was that consistent with writing, but like I, I've been in a similar boat where I wanted to do all these things. But, you know, as you know, I've had a lot going on. It's just like all those things pieced together, even with the good ones, stuff, just everything is just, it's a lot. And the whole needing more sleep, yes, empathy there too. I need like a minimum of seven hours a night, but eight and a half up. So I very much empathize with you there, friend, and I just wanted to encourage you to keep doing whatever you got to do, and like you said, you just keep trying, and I really hope that um, that doesn't keep you down, and it's just, we got to do whatever we got to do, we got to put certain things first, and it sucks when the creative juice is not flowing, and you know, when we got to push harder to do it, we got to push harder, but sometimes we got to let our creative brains rest, and I know I'm better at letting mine rest than come out and play, but that's just what that's what I've had to do for me. I'm very glad for you and grateful that you've been able to produce so much creative work over the years. So it's awesome. But you know, when you need rest, you need rest too. So I'm I'm here supporting you and uh, wishing you well. That's it for now. Take care. Thanks, Sarah. I really appreciate the encouragement. I have this bad habit of only comparing myself to whichever of my friends are writing the most at any given moment, and when they're stuck in fallow times, like the one I'm in, I usually don't even notice. The result is a lot like I'm trying to run a relay race all by myself, against a team of my most awesomely productive writer friends, and then I berate myself for not keeping up with them. Thanks for reminding me to be patient with myself. Hey, Chris. Steven from Georgia. Uh, don't beat yourself up over you're measuring your progress by the wrong scorecard. You know, you always measure how many words per hour and days you write and stuff like that. That's good, but I think what's even better is the fantastic stories you've been telling. And they're all over people's podcasts and Audible accounts. and Just fantastic stories have really added to people's lives. And you definitely make me think. And uh, that's even a bonus. So don't beat yourself up over the wrong scorecard. You're doing fantastic work. Thank you very much. And thank you very much, Stephen. That's another bad habit of mine. I spend a lot of time thinking about the stories I haven't finished writing yet, and I forget to look back and take pride in what I've already done. I've written and published five sizable books in my adult life, and I'm not even 40 yet. While that's not as many as some other authors have done, it's a hell of a lot more than most people have ever written. So thanks for the change in perspective. 
I'm glad you're enjoying the stories, and I'm really glad that they're making you think, too. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the show, send your feedback in text or audio to metamorecityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900, then enter extension 255082, followed by the pound sign. My Facebook is facebook.com slash author Chris Lester. The fan group is fans of Metamore City on Facebook. And my Mastodon handle is at author Chris Lester at wandering.shop. If you like this show, take a minute and leave me a review in Apple Podcasts. It makes a big difference in helping people find the show. That's all for this week. I'll be back next time with more fresh new fiction. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2018 by Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. The show is released under a Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives License. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.